0: Again, by remembering what T.S. Eliot said in Little Gidding, which is the end of all our exploring is to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. And so we want to start where we want to end up, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because that is the great Trinitarian mystery into which Christ came to call us. And about which Henri de Lubac, the great French Catholic Theologian said, quote, the mystery of the Trinity was not made known to us as a sublime theory or a celestial theorem with no connection with what we are and what we must become. So the Trinity has to do with, according to de Lubach, what we are and what we must become. And I want to have uh, some things to say about that in a few minutes. I'm following de Lubach's example here tonight because much of what follows will be a florilegium of text, an anthology. I'm a living, breathing anthology. That's what I do. I I gather text and I share them with you and I juxtapose them so that they sort of speak to each other. My purpose is to bring out of the great uh, Christian uh, treasury uh, resources that are appropriate for the situation that we're in today. The, the theme for our session tonight is a very long-winded theme it is changing the subject and that's a play on words in case you didn't get it changing the subject from self to person from a psychological to a sacramental understanding of who we are now our word our most common word for our subjectivity these days is the word self and the word self comes from the word autos which means autonomous alone standalone an individual, and this idea of human subjectivity is an existential manifestation of a liberationist anthropology, which is synonymous with modernity. A liberationist anthropology is that we free ourselves by cutting our ties, by freeing ourselves from constraints and from the entanglements of whatever it is, social life, moral constraints, uh, uh, so on and so forth, that freedom is acquired by extricating myself from these entanglements. So the question of the self and the question of freedom come together. And tonight we're going to talk about the person, really. But in the course of talking about the person, we're going to talk about the self, because the self, most people think, is a synonym for the person. And it's the reigning idea of subjectivity in our time. So what immediately follows is a little florilegium of texts that I think are relevant to that discussion that'll sort of get the process going. The first one is David Bentley Hart. David Bentley Hart is a Greek Orthodox scholar, and he says this, the modern understanding of freedom is essentially incompatible with the classical or Christian understanding of man, the world, or society. Freedom as we now conceive it presumes and must ever more consciously pursue an irreducible nihilism. For there must be nothing transcendent of the will that might command it toward ends it would not choose of itself. No value higher than those the will imposes upon its world. No nature but what the will elects for itself. And this idea of freedom, as Hart says, is incompatible with classical or Christian thought. Paulus Mar Gregorios is another Orthodox scholar. Last time it was heavyweight German thinkers, and this time it's Greek Orthodox thinkers. Gregorios, I don't know if he's still with us, but he wrote a book some years ago on the Western Enlightenment, and in there he says, quote, in the Western tradition The basic meaning of the word free is not subject to another, not dominated or restricted by another, not owing unquestioning loyalty to anyone, not having a master. That's the basic Western idea of freedom. Again, extricating oneself from entanglements. And on the subject of freedom, which will help us understand the self a little better, Hans Urs von Balthasar, I quote von Balthasar all the time, and he has something worth hearing here. He says, from the true Christian, there radiates the kind of freedom that is constantly only being sought after by the non-Christian. In modern times, the freedom of man is a theme which preoccupies both Christian and non-Christian, and a competition is in process as to who can understand this freedom more profoundly and more effectively put it into practice so long as christianity is seen to be principally a matter of traditions and institutions other contemporary movements toward freedom will have no difficulties in this competition the competition will only begin in earnest when the christian undertakes to show that god's free revelation of himself in jesus christ is an invitation into a realm of an absolute and divine freedom in which alone human freedom can be fully realized. So that's one of the things we want to do tonight, Let's take up that challenge to begin that competition in earnest, as he says, by showing that God's free revelation of himself in Jesus Christ is an invitation into the realm of an absolute and divine freedom in which alone human freedom can be fully realized. And von Balthasar concludes, as opposed to those who search for freedom urges them onwards into a barren void the christian stands as a messenger of freedom accomplished and of freedom attainable by all now about this barren void that von balthasar mentions david bentley hart explicates that in another passage quite well it seems to me he says christian theology rejected nothing in the metaphysics ethics or methodology of antique philosophy but with a kind of omnivorous glee, assimilated such elements as served its ends and always improved them in the process. And I love this phrase, omnivorous glee, and I'm going to repeat it several times tonight because I think we must reacquire this omnivorous glee. What he's saying is Christian theology and the aftermath of the resurrection, Christians that had to acquire the vocabulary and, and create the conceptual tools for expressing what had happened in their presence and to them. And they were willing to take on all the tools that were available. And they just reached out and grabbed these tools. Here he's talking about philosophy. They grabbed up philosophy and made it useful for this task of theirs. By the way, this spirit of grabbing things up, Paul makes mention of it when he says, make all thoughts captive for Christ. All of this stuff, because the revelation is the universal revelation about the human condition, it can assimilate all of that. And so it wasn't just philosophical concepts and so on. It was cultural, religious, artistic, literary, all of these resources of the ancient world. Christianity grabbed them up with omnivorous glee and set them in order in a way. So that's something to aspire to. But then Hart says this, what is the consequence then when Christianity as a living historical force recedes, which is what's been happening in the Western world for the last while? He says, we do not have to speculate. As it happens, modernity speaks for itself. With the withdrawal of Christian culture, all the glories of the ancient world that it baptized and redeemed have perished with it in the great cataclysm. So Christianity grabbed up all that and baptized it and made it fruitful. And so to dispense with Christianity is to lose it all. It's what Hart is saying. He goes on to say, Christianity is too powerful in its embrace of the world and all the world's mystery and beauty. And so to reject Christianity now is of necessity to reject everything except the barren anonymity of spontaneous subjectivity. Now, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but the barren anonymity of spontaneous subjectivity is the self. So what's left, says Hart, as Christianity recedes, what we're left with is the self, or as he says, the barren anonymity of spontaneous subjectivity. So that's the price of liberating ourselves from a Christianity, liberating ourselves. Liberation is the theme of modernity all across the board. And the question is, after all of this liberation, why are we still enslaved? <laughs> why have we not really gotten free? So now I'm going to turn to an entirely different subject, which is the person. Tonight I want to make two passes at the word person, a brief one now, and then I'm going to do a little genealogy of how it disintegrated into the self, and then go back and look at the word person again a little bit later. The word person entered the vocabulary of Western culture only after Christian theologians, in speaking of the three persons of the Trinity, gave the word persona a philosophical profundity never before associated with it. In bringing about this theological revolution, the theologians of the fourth and fifth centuries laid the groundwork for a revolution in human self-understanding, which has yet to be fully appreciated, and which it may be the special privilege of 21st century Christianity to rediscover. Here I am quoting another Orthodox guy. This is the Orthodox evening. As the Orthodox theologian Paul Evdokimov says, The revelation of the person is the event of Christianity. The revelation of the person is the event of Christianity, says Evdokimov. At the heart of Christianity, writes Johann Baptist Metz, Catholic theologian, at the heart of Christianity is a revolutionary formation process for a new subjectivity. And John Zizioulis, Orthodox scholar, you guessed it, a very gifted theologian, says, although the person and personal identity are widely discussed nowadays as the supreme ideal, nobody seems to recognize that historically as well as existentially the concept of the person is indissolubly bound up with Christian theology. The person, he goes on to say, the person both as a concept and as a living reality is purely the product of patristic thought the Church Fathers. Without this, the deepest meaning of personhood can neither be grasped nor justified. So the Church, the Catholic Church, it seems to me, inaugurates a recovery of the mystery of subjectivity at the time of Vatican II, and it's from the Vatican II document, Gaudium et Spes, the very famous, Paragraph 22, the reason it's a very famous paragraph 22 is because John Paul II quoted it all the time. And Benedict XVI has been following suit more or less. And so here's a an encapsulated version of that paragraph. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. By the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, Christ is the revelation of the Trinity. By the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, Christ fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. So we've always known that Christ reveals the truth about God, the truth that we couldn't possibly have gotten to without Christ's revelation. That God would die on a cross to bring us all back into the Trinitarian love life would certainly not have occurred to us unless it was revealed to us. So we know that we could not understand God fully without the revelation of Christ. What Gadim at Spez 22 says, we cannot understand ourselves without understanding Christ, that we are made in the image and likeness of the Trinitarian God that Christ reveals. And since we're made in the image and likeness of that God, we can't understand ourselves until we take the anthropological measure of that Trinitarian doctrine which is to say Christian anthropology, properly understood in a Trinitarian context, is the key to understanding the human vocation as such, what it means to be human. These are bold statements, but they are the kind of bold statements that we have made for 2,000 years, and only lately have we become too timid to make them, and I think we should be, in the spirit of omnivorous glee, uh, we we should return to these bold statements. So the question is, what exactly is this unique concept of subjectivity that Christ reveals to us? Well, we would have to pore over the New Testament and other things to find the answer to that in any detail. But I have here for you two passages from the Gospel of John that I think sum it up. In chapter 14, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. What kind of subjectivity is that? You see, it's a mutual indwelling, something starkly different from the idea of the self. The self is an entity, a standalone entity in a billiard ball world where these entities bump up against each other and guard their boundaries and so on. And suddenly, there's no guarding of boundaries here. They've disappeared almost. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. And then in John 17, this is Jesus is praying before he goes to his passion. And he says, As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. If we only understood that, you know. So what kind of subjectivity is that? One thinks of Paul's, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Another mutual indwelling. So that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Christ is God's invitation into the Trinitarian love life. And the church is humanity's RSVP to the invitation. Now, my Floralagium will continue with some more quotes to frame this properly. I talk about von Balthasar all the time. Von Balthazar is a mountain range, a huge mountain range. So we have to send experienced explorers and cartographers up into the mountain range to map it and bring us back information about what's up there. And one of the most gifted of these cartographers, probably because he's a Dominican, uh, is uh, Aidan Nichols, <laughs> who is a, I think I quoted him last time, uh, uh, a British Dominican at Cambridge. In one of his books, he says the following, It is Balthazar's theology of Christ as a person which is most unusual, for he argues that the concept of personhood not only originates, historically speaking, in Christology and its Trinitarian dimension, but even more than that, that philosophically and theologically it remains, even today, unavailable without reference to Christ, that we cannot understand the word person without reference to Christ. He uniquely embodies what this concept is. Romano Guardini, in the middle of the 20th century, said, quote, the knowledge of what it means to be a person is inextricably bound up with the faith of Christianity. If he said that today, he'd be arrested for a hate crime or something. You see what I mean? <laughs> uh, so that's a bold statement. And then there's a, a little bit of an ominous thing at the end. He says, an affirmation and a cultivation of the personal can endure for a time perhaps after faith has been extinguished, but gradually they will be lost. So Christianity is what makes it possible for us to nurture this idea of personhood. The word person, in other words, is our word to be a little too possessive here. It's a Christian word. It's been genericized like Kleenex or Band-Aid, which at one time was a specific word and now is a general word. So we think now often that the word person is a synonym for individual or self or something like that. But far from that, it's much more like the opposite of these things. This understanding of the person seeps into the world, even when it's not theologically or philosophically drawn out. It seeps into the world out of Christian revelation itself. So we inherit it in some way without having thought it through. It comes out of the Christian moral ethos. And von Balsar has some passages about how it affects us at the moral and political and cultural level. He says, quote, Christianity has shed the light of love over humanity, and in this light, the unique worth of every individual person is made manifest. Without this light, the general principles of human rights could not have been formulated. We know this, by the way, as a historical fact. The worldwide interest in human rights comes directly out of the Christian tradition. And von Balthasar goes further and says, in vain we shall search the world before Christ for this kind of outlook of man on his fellow man. We shall find it neither in Plato, who speaks of Eros, nor in the treatises of Aristotle and Cicero on friendship, nor even in the writings of the Stoics, In none of these will we find the kind of respect for the person of one's neighbor that can only be established as a principle for the first time by the Christian revelation. Now he's going to say something comparable to what Guardini said. Remember, Guardini said an affirmation and the cultivation of the personal can endure for a time perhaps after faith has been extinguished, but gradually they will be lost. Von Balthasar argues, that should the Christian source of our respect for the personhood of our neighbor fall into oblivion, then sooner or later the face of the person will become indistinct and he will sink back once more into mere anonymity. Now, that seems a little apocalyptic, but if we all fell asleep in 1950 and woke up in 2009, one of the things that would strike us is the degree of anonymity that is now very much part of our cultural world. So I think these warnings about what happens when the cultural influence of Christianity wanes are absolutely apropos and apropos in very many areas, but apropos especially to the the matter of subjectivity. So now a little genealogy, genealogies are now very much in fashion, you know? So this is a little genealogy of where this revelation slid Away from its most emphatic manifestation, and gradually became something I'd like to self. Now this genealogy is going to be very truncated. But the metaphor I'm using is I'm going to take a flat rock and skip it over a very wide pond. It's going to hit the pond three times, and then it's going to hit the other side. And this it's a 2,000-year pond, so that's not exactly a thorough airing of the issue. In a 1990 article, Joseph Ratzinger argued that as long as we fail to understand the anthropological ramifications of Trinitarian theology, quote, the contribution of Christian faith to the whole of human thought will not be realized. He goes on to say, although it is precisely the meaning of this new element to call into question the whole of human thought and to set it on a new course. Again, these are bold statements. The purpose of the Christian revelation is to capture all thoughts for Christ, to alter the whole thing and set it on a new course. And in that article, Cardinal Ratzinger said, this has not happened because we have not downloaded the anthropological implications of the Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, the reason, Cardinal Ratzinger argued, for that failure is that we have long regarded the personhood of Christ as an ontological exception. So, Christ said, I and the Father are one, and you are in me, and I am in you, and they will be in me, and I will be in you, and all of that, and that's pretty bewildering, and we decided that that was pretty impressive, but it had nothing to do with us. He's in the category of one. We know that. He is in a category of one. That's true, but we assumed that it was an ontological exception and therefore had no anthropological ramifications for understanding ourselves. Through a series of developments, to which I'll make a brief allusion here, the West, influenced by Neoplatonism and then by modern philosophical programs that essentially preserved its anthropological errors, ended up with the self. So Karl Rahner, in the middle of the 20th century, argued for the need to free ourselves from the Neoplatonic habits of thought which have held us in bondage for 2,000 years. Neoplatonism is a a religious philosophy, uh, which is committed to the oneness of everything. It's the attempt to commune with that oneness by acts of very serious introspection, basically. That is to say, the alone speaks to the alone by turning inward and dispensing with these contingencies that are part of one's life and entanglements and so on and so forth. These are just distractions, so one has to continually turn inward. Now, of course, Any error, not to mention heresy, that has an element of truth in it. Certainly, we need to have moments of introspection and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, I think Rahner is right that there is a Neoplatonic habit of thought that we need to be disabused of. If he's right, then what von Balthasar says about Augustine is pertinent to the task. He says, quote, at the time of his conversion in Milan, Augustine was assiduously practicing Neoplatonic self-absorption. That is to say, turning inward, trying to achieve that oneness mystery uh, inside himself. Now, I'm an Augustinian, as far as I can tell. And uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, is an Augustinian, no question about that. So this is not some cheap shot at St. Augustine. St. Augustine's contribution to uh, Christian faith is so massive that if he made uh, a couple of little mistakes along the way, uh, nobody's going to hold it against him. On the other hand, if you're going to say something of a slightly unkind nature about Augustine, you better have papal approval. And I more or less do. Joseph Ratzinger said in that article, quote, Augustine explicitly transposed theology into anthropology by attempting to understand the human person as an image of the Trinity. Bingo, that's what we're supposed to do. Augustine's transposition of the Trinity to the human person has a couple of formulations. The most typical one, perhaps, is memory, intelligence, and will. Augustine asked himself, how does the human person correspond to the Trinity? And he comes up with memory, intelligence, and will. So these are the three corollaries to the person to the Trinity. Cardinal Ratzinger says, unfortunately, Augustine here committed a decisive mistake. He projected the divine person's into the interior life of the human person and affirmed that intrapsychic processes correspond to these persons. As a result, the Trinitarian concept of the person was no longer transferred to the human person in all of its immediate impact. What's lost is relationality. The memory, intelligence, and will relate to each other, of course, in some way, probably. But is it anything like what we would call a relationship? The Trinity is relational. That's the whole breathtaking part of it. The, the persons of the Trinity are constantly deferring, giving love, receiving from the other. The Trinity is constantly in this exchange of love and glory and, uh, and so on. So when these things are transposed into intrapsychic processes, says Cardinal Ratzinger, something very profound is lost. It didn't do Augustine any harm. His, his conversion was so powerful and his converted Christian heart was so massive. But Chesterton says a tiny mistaken doctrine can lead to huge blunders in human happiness. And so that veering off just a little bit there over the centuries uh, creates some problems. So the next place the rock is going to hit the pond is a thousand years later. I'm trying to finish by nine. Uh, not that I'm competent of filling in all the detail. that's why I picked a particularly flat rock to get this thing done. But a thousand years later, we come to René Descartes. Now, Descartes was a reader of Augustine and was smitten by the same Neoplatonic habits of thought. And Descartes gave these Neoplatonic habits of thought their distinctively modern philosophical form and assigned them their distinctively modern epistemological task. And to understand Descartes in the way that you and I can understand Descartes. Maybe you're more philosophical than I am. I I don't have a philosophical bone in my body, as we have shown. (laughs) But, but, But I do have a couple of anthropological instincts. And to really understand Descartes, you don't need to understand the philosophy so much as simply to see what is present in the epiphany of Descartes. And there are a couple of passages in his meditations I'm going to read to you, uh, which I think tell the whole story. The first is during the winter of 1628, when Descartes was in Holland. Dutch winters are pretty grim, you know. And he writes the following. The onset of winter held me up in quarters, in which, finding no company to distract me, and having fortunately no cares or passions to disturb me, I spent the whole day shut up in a room heated by an enclosed stove where I had complete leisure to meditate on my own thoughts. So you you detect a a, a a note of pride here that he was able to stay in that room all day long by himself and just think about his own thoughts, you know. We don't know if he picked up a book and did a little reading, he doesn't say. But in any case <laughs> now the point is he's thinking his own thoughts. Everything is left out. And he's turning inward. A little later, he says, I will now close my eyes. I will plug my ears. I will turn aside all my senses. In this way, concerned only with myself, looking only at what is inside me, I will try little by little to know myself and to become more familiar to myself. What he's looking for is certainty. He's not looking for truth. Truth, you know, comes from the word troth. It involves a, a, a relationship. It involves a giving and receiving. It's, a, it's fundamentally Marian. Truth involves a fiat of some kind, you see, a response. But Descartes' is not after truth, he's after certainty. You see, what can I believe for sure? And then he goes on in another place even more. He says, I will suppose that the sky, the air, earth, colors, figures, sounds, all external things are nothing but illusions. I will consider myself as without hands, eyes, flesh, blood, or any of the senses, and as falsely believing that I am possessed of these, completely cutting himself off so that he could turn inward to find out what he could be certain about. The metaphysics of self-sufficiency to which Descartes gave intellectual credence is rooted in a false anthropology, precisely the false anthropology from which Trinitarian theology delivers us if we recognize its anthropological ramifications. Those attempting to conform their lives to the prevailing metaphysics of self-sufficiency will resolutely strive to hide from themselves and others The manifold operations of what René Girard calls mimesis and imitation in their lives. We are not billiard balls. We influence each other all the while. And even when it's quite clear who is dominant in this influence exchange, it's always reciprocal. Even Freud saw that with the countertransference and so on. We influence each other. No man is an island. We're porous. We're contagious. It's a community, you see. It's not billiard balls. And Girard accounts for this in terms of the mimetic process. So to this quintessential modern gesture of mimetic denial, Christianity throws down the gauntlet, relentlessly underscoring the role of imitation in human affairs, both its perils and its promises. In Christianity, there's always the talk about following, following Christ, imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul says. Do what you see me doing, Christ says. It's all over the New Testament. But when we get to the modern period, driven by this liberationist idea of human subjectivity, we deny that there's any of that going on. If we catch ourselves, we try to hide it and cover it up in some way It seems unworthy of us. When Descartes' attempt to shut down the five senses in the service of the metaphysics of self-sufficiency failed, An alternative life support system for this dubious anthropology had to be found. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau finally came up with one, ludicrous to be sure, but one which had huge cultural consequences, continues to have cultural consequences. Now, of course, I'm going to scapegoat Rousseau. I'm not the first to do it. It's tactless of me to do it. But nevertheless, it's all for our betterment. So Descartes said he was concerned only with himself. The first, and I've quoted these two sentences before. The first two sentences of Rousseau's Confessions. The first one is, "I have resolved on an enterprise which has no precedent, and which, once complete, will have no imitator." You see, what is he saying? I don't imitate anybody. Nobody's going to imitate me. I am out of that process. I'm a standalone entity. And then he says, "My purpose is to display to my kind a portrait." true in every way to nature, and the man I shall portray will be myself. This is what David Hart called spontaneous subjectivity. That is to say, a denial of any kind of entanglement with all of those others in his life who were obviously and in our lives always influencing us. The influence goes back and forth in both directions. Rousseau turned neoplatonic self-absorption, into an elaborate program of self-dramatization, attracting the mimetic attention of an extraordinary number of his contemporaries who were fascinated precisely by his apparent indifference to their fascination. I wish we had time to go into that because it's very funny. Rousseau was the first to discover that if you pretend not to be at all concerned about what other people think, all they will think about is you. So the Cartesian rigors of self-discovery morph into the rousseauesque rituals of self-dramatization. William Temple called Descartes' withdrawal into himself quote the most disastrous moment in the history of Europe. But I would reserve that distinction for Rousseau, for Rousseau really is the fountainhead of most of the cultural corruption of the late modern period, including the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror. Robespierre carried a copy of Rousseau with him at all times. Nature Romanticism, which morphed rather easily into the blood and soil Romanticism, and then into Fascism, Nazism, and Stalin's Mother Russia Communism. Just as disastrously, it's Rousseau who prepares the way for Friedrich Nietzsche, Michel Foucault, Margaret Mead, Margaret Sanger, the sexual revolution, and the destruction of the family. Rousseau not only abandoned his own children, he provided others with a philosophical rationale for doing likewise. Rousseau's fantasies about the sexual bliss of primitive peoples makes today's sexual libertines look like shy debutantes and well-mannered courtiers. In the original state of nature, Rousseau argued no sexual decorum and no moral bonds were operative. Natural man was free of such fetters. The chains of moral and social life were the lamentable effect of civilization in a world in the world of natural man according to Rousseau not only was the sexual act merely an animal act but the bonds between parents and children were tenuous and temporary of course this fit Rousseau's lifestyle quite nicely he had several simultaneous affairs and with one of the women he had a long-term affair with he had 5 children when they were born he took them straight to the foundling home all 5 of them in the confessions he talks about this He says, I made up my mind cheerfully and without the least scruple. The only scruples I had to overcome were those of Therese, the mother. I had the greatest difficulty in the world getting her to accept this means of preserving her honor. Doesn't that just sound like it? Her mother, who feared the inconvenience of a brat, came to my aid and she allowed herself to be overcome. A discreet and trustworthy midwife was chosen. And when Teresa's time came, she was taken to the midwife by her mother for the birth. The baby was then deposited by the midwife at the office of the foundling home in the way that was customary. The following year, there came the same inconvenience and the same expediments. I didn't reflect any further, and the mother didn't approve any more fully. She groaned but obeyed. Five children straight to the family home. This is shocking, of course, but who can fail to see that the logic at work here is precisely the logic of Roe v. Wade, our age's way of eliminating what Rousseau glibly calls these inconveniences. A few months or a few moments before Rousseau was able to do so, Rousseau, alas, having to wait for the child to come down the birth canal. Again, all of this has to do with the understanding of the human condition and the self as liberationist. One must flee from these entanglements. In order to be free, one has to extricate oneself. So now I'm going to turn to Benedict XVI. I think it was in Space Salvi, Benedict XVI says freedom is not opting out, it's opting in. This is one of those lapidary formulations that is so brilliant in terms of the contemporary situation. It just rings like a bell. Freedom is not opting out, it's opting in. The gospel has done our opting out for us. Remember when we talked about the crucifixion, when the crowds who had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, they turned it away and went home beating their breasts. The event that's supposed to bring people together begins to dissolve culture. The Christian revelation is the beginning of the end of conventional culture, rooted, as it has always been, in the unifying power of collective violence. The recognition of the innocence of the victim shatters that. And so the gospel does our opting out for us, it's the beginning of the great cultural diaspora in the midst of which we are now living. And there's a great apocalyptic element in that because conventional culture is dying everywhere on this planet. Jesus said, those who do not gather with me will be scattered. This is another incredibly powerful statement. If we understood it anthropologically and not just you know piously and, and so on, uh, we would realize there's a tremendous power to that. Those who do not gather with me will be scattered. The great diaspora has begun, and Luke gives an incredible formulation of that. There are ultimately only two gathering principles, what my friend Robert Hampton Kelly calls the GMSM, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism, and the spirit that gathered Jesus' disciples in the upper room at Pentecost and sent them out as living invitation into the worldwide transnational community consisting neither of Greeks nor Jews, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, but all one in Christ Jesus. A new gathering principle that is not sacred violence, but the spirit that moves quietly in us and among us and gathers us together. If we look to the secularized post-Christian remnant of Western civilization today, the apparent choice seems to be between, on one hand, militant forms of Islam busily trying to reinstate the galvanizing power of sacred violence, and on the other, secular liberalism's soft antinomian relativism, which itself is increasingly prone to the totalitarian imposition of a post-Christian moral order. Those familiar with the actual situation in, for example, Europe know, however, that that is no choice at all. The idea that irreligious or anti-religious secularism has a future anywhere on the planet is anthropologically naive, as is the hope that European secularism will be anything more than a mild irritant to resurgent Islam which won't even bother to challenge its vacuous pomposity. So certain is it that post-Christian secularism's antinatal fixation will literally bury it in a demographic winter of its own making. If I may speak tongue-in-cheek and metaphorically, the only truly post-Christian options for the heirs of Western civilization are Islamic Sharia on one hand, and Twitter and Facebook on the other. A savagely imposed and implacably enforced social bondedness and an eviscerated, virtual, evanescent network on the other. By the way, I've gotten in touch with old friends on Facebook, too. As a matter of fact, just today I got one, so I'm happy for that. And I'm not, as I say, this was tongue-in-cheek and a little bit metaphorical. While I was in Cambridge for the session in Cambridge, there was a, a little moment of epiphany in our discussion period, and that is a woman who's been coming to these sessions spoke up. She said, well, I don't know, but I'm lonely, and so is everybody else I know, and it was as though somebody had just fired a pistol in the room. You know, There was a sense in which a truth had been spoken that was the kind of truth that people don't speak. And uh, that's it. was very interesting to me, partly because I spend a lot of time alone. And I know loneliness from the inside and the outside. But I also spend a lot of time in airports and eating in restaurants by myself and going to motels and this kind of stuff. And so I observe this phenomenon, which is so widespread in our world. I observe it from the inside and out. I can't tell you how many times in these situations the lyrics of the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby, have come unbidden into my mind. So I will recite a few of these lyrics for you. Eleanor Rigby waits at the window wearing a face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? Father McKenzie, Father McKenzie and I are one. Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. No one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Where do they all belong? Belong. In ecclesiology these days or in the study of church structures, there's something people say all the time that we're in an age of believing but not belonging. We believe but we don't belong. Can you possibly believe and not belong? Is it possible? You see, That capitulates to this idea of the self. Wearing a mask that she keeps in a jar by the door, who is it for? Von Balthasar says, the face of the person becomes indistinct and sinks back once more into mere anonymity if we lose the Christian ferment that brought it into distinction, you see. The etymological history of the word person, as I understand it, begins with an ancient Etruscan ritual. As that religious ritual was devolving into a performance drama, the word tragedy means goat play. And before the Attic Theater, tragedy was a sacrificial ritual to the god Dionysus. And likewise, this Etruscan ritual was to the goddess Persephone, but it had evolved into a performance drama. And the mask worn by the character who played Persephone had a name, which came from the goddess's name, which was Persu. And this mask had two functions. The minor function was to depict the goddess, but that was not important because the audience was too far away for that depiction to mean much. The major function of the mask was to amplify the actor's voice because people did have to hear that voice. So the mask really was a kind of megaphone with a little face designed on it. The primary purpose was to amplify the voice. Etruscan theater influenced Roman theater. And when the Romans uh, tried to uh, find a, a cognate for pursue, recognizing the functionality of a mask, they hit on the verb Personare, which means per means through, and sonare means sound. To sound through is what the mask is. The noun version of personare, of course, is persona. Now, in due course, this word persona in the Latin world began to be used for the role that people play in social life, much the way we might use it today. The Greeks also had a term which was the mask, prosopon. But in the Greek world, it had not been used to talk about social roles, which led to the controversy between the Latins and the Greeks when it was time to argue about the persons of the Trinity. The question is, what do we call these three realities in the Trinity without violating the oneness of God? And this was a huge controversy. At the Council of Nicaea, we get the formulation that there are three hypostases, so they use a Greek word hypostasis in one usia, one substance. Hupostasis, hupo means under, and stasis means to stand. So hypostasis, is the ground of one's being, is in something other than oneself. You see? The persons of the Trinity are hypostases because they differ and are grounded in one another. They give and receive constantly from one another, so they are You could take from that, if you wanted to be bold, you could take from that, and I'm using these terms completely out of their ordinary usage, you could say that we are either going to be consubstantial or we're going to be insubstantial. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me is a form of consubstantiality, precisely the Christian form of consubstantiality. And the only alternative to that is insubstantiality, or the self, the standalone entity that is not grounded in a Then, 50 or 60 years later, at the Council of Constantinople, it was finally agreed that the word hypostasis and persona and prosopon all were available to describe the Trinity. And John Zizziulis says that decision Marked a philosophical landmark and a revolution in Greek philosophy. I don't know enough about that to even comment on that, but he thought that was a major shift in Greek philosophy. But the important thing about Zizioulis' treatment of this is that everybody else agreed yes, this term came from the theater, which is a little bit down market for a term you're going to use to describe the Trinity. So it was just accepted that that was the case? But Zizulus 25 years ago, said to himself, wait a minute, we should look at that. We should ask ourselves, does that tell us something, that it came from the theater? He says, was it coincidental that we got this word that means the person, a Christian person, from the theater? He says, it is precisely in the theater that man strives to become a person. Now, he's talking about the pagan theater, the ancient pagan theater. So he asked, what is the connection between the actor's mask and the human person? And here's his answer. As a result of the mask, the actor acquires a certain taste of freedom. So now we're back to the question of the subject and freedom. As a result of the mask, the actor acquires a certain taste of freedom, a certain specific hypostasis, a certain identity, which the rational and moral harmony of the world in which he lives denies him, a certain taste of freedom. In Seattle, the friend of mine that's been helping me do things there for many years, when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, she trained in theater at the University of Dallas, and she said, my professor in undergraduate school When there was a student who would be inhibited and couldn't do his lines well enough or something, the professor would always give him a mask. And as soon as he had the mask, he loosened up and was able to deliver his lines and make his moves and all of that. It freed him up. So this is, Zizilis is referring to something like that. He has a certain taste of freedom, a certain specific hypostasis, because he's there representing, not like Rousseau, myself, you see, but he's Creon or Antigone or Persephone, you see. There's a certain specific upostasis that he's able to participate in. He's there grounded in this other. He's there on behalf of that other. And then he goes on to say, as a result of the mask he has become a person, albeit for a brief period, and has learned what it is to exist as a free, unique and unrepeatable entity. Because of the mask on the pagan Greek stage. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. What does that mean? What does that tell us about the mystery of the person? What it tells us, if you think of Christ as the fundamental analog, what it tells us is that the person is the one who does not come in his own name. The person is the one who does not come in his own name. Jesus says, if I had come in my own name, you would listen to me. But because I do not come in my own name, you'll have nothing to do with me. See, that that coming not in one's own name is the mystery of personhood, Christian personhood. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. This kind of thing. Now, von Balthasar says, quote, Often actors themselves have been the most profound and existential thinkers about their unique profession coming up with amazing revelation. Like many poets, they sense the uncanny nearness of the religious dimension. By the way, I've given this talk before a lot of people that have been involved in theater, and they unanimously say that's exactly it. That is exactly it. You go to Hollywood and bus tables for 20 years, it's because of that, not because you want to get rich and famous. Maybe you want to get rich and famous, but it's fundamentally because it's addictive. That experience of freedom you have when you're there, not in your own name, wearing, metaphorically at least, the mask, is what is so powerful. Gabriel Marcel, the existentialist philosopher, says, One can ask whether the actor does not possess quite unique opportunities of grace, whether there's not something in his existence that can somehow attract God's favor. He can only find himself if he is prepared to lose himself. Thus, pursuing his vocation, he can provide us through his unusual life with a metaphor of human life as it aims towards its supernatural goal. He does not come in his own name okay, for von Balthazar, mission, grace, and person all come together. personhood is a calling, a mission, and all grace is associated with a mission and so these three things are all entangled with each other. He says, it is when God addresses a conscious subject. Now, von Balthasar's analysis of this, he uses the term conscious subject over against the person. Clearly, if personhood is a vocation, one can renounce it, accept it in some lukewarm way, or fulfill it at all kinds of levels. But von Balthasar's way of distinguishing one who has moved in that direction and one who has not, is a conscious subject on one hand, person on the other. He says it is when God addresses a conscious subject, tells him who he is and what he means to the eternal God of truth, and shows him the purpose of his existence, that is, imparts a distinctive and divinely authorized mission that we can say of a conscious subject that he is a person. So, grace, mission, and personhood come together. Now, what I wanted to do is give a sense of this full-bodied Christian idea of the person in a little broader context. So I have completely arbitrarily delineated this concept of the person into four categories. I'm always suspicious of this kind of thing. You know, the the only two kinds of people, the people that think there are only two kinds of people, and everybody else. So. <laughs> So there's these four categories. See if they work for you. First of all, I would want to say that we are ontological persons from the moment of conception. It's very important, even though von Balthard makes this distinction between the conscious subject and the person. The truth is that we are ontological persons. We are members of the human race from the moment of conception. We are beings who are called by God from the moment of conception. As a matter of fact, we could say that a one-day-old embryo responds to God's call simply by clinging to life. Moses says, choose you, therefore, life. The one-day-old embryo says yes to that call, clings to life. You could even say that the one-day-old embryo says yes 100%. And me and you, even on our best days, are in the 50 to 60 range. You see what I mean? So we're ontological persons from the moment of conception. That's very important. But then we are actualized persons, I would say. I'm choosing words rather arbitrarily. We are actualized persons when we allow ourselves to be formed by the constraints of moral and social life, by culture. And for that, I have a couple of quotations, which I think will help sort of flesh that out. One is from a political scientist named... Thomas Rourke, who wrote a recent essay in which he argued that Benedict XVI's pontificate is dedicated to rescuing the Enlightenment from itself, which I think is a fair assessment in some way. And Rourke says this, and I was not aware of this. He says, quote, The biblical equivalent of our word freedom, eleutheria, really has nothing to do with the modern idea of freedom as the ability to follow one's subjective wants. It means, rather, to belong. Remember the Beatles and Eleanor Rigby, where do they all belong? He says the biblical word freedom means to belong, to be a member of the community, to be able to participate as a fully recognized member. To be free means to have a home, to belong to it, and to share fully in its life, its obligations and privileges. That's a radical definition of freedom compared to what we have, this liberationist idea of casting off it, is to belong. The freedom that we want is the freedom to be in community, which requires that we constrain our impulses. Because if we don't constrain our impulses, the community will fly apart in a heartbeat. David Bentley Hart, I quoted earlier, specifies that a little more. He says, As one learns to consent to a common and demanding set of conventions and duties, one also progressively acquires an ever-greater purity of character, a stability, and hence identity, a unified self, which he puts in quotation marks. One emerges from the inchoate turmoil of mere emotion and liberated from the momentary impulses and vain promptings of the will and arrives at what can truly be called one's essence. Precisely through accepting freely the constraints of a larger social and moral tradition and community, one gives shape to a character that can endure from moment to moment rather than dissolving in each instance into whichever new inclination of appetite or curiosity rises up within oneself. To be free, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to have some self-control. So that would be a, an actualized person. In other words, not someone who's constantly trying to throw off those, thinking that we can be free without them. But then we come closer to something more Christian, and I'm going to call this the hypostatic person. Those who have been deeply influenced by the mimetic example of models worthy of emulation. Models, for instance, who have modeled their lives on Christ, or on yet another disciple of Christ found among the great cloud of witnesses, to which the church calls our attention and in doing so shows us a very real and very ordinary path to sanctification. That is to say, we can order our lives simply by falling under the influence, gerard would say, mimetic influence, of those who we would call saints, canonized or otherwise, whose emulation ennobles us. And sanctifies it's another way of ordering our lives, not according to rules and constraints of social order, but simply the ordering by imitation of a model that's worthy of our imitation. There is a natural segue from this form of personhood to the next, for as our fascination for Christ is focused on the saints, canonized or otherwise, We can reach the point at which, thanks to this mimetic influence, as well as to the church's sacramental resources, we can become finally full-fledged ecclesial persons. And I want to say a word about what that would be. This would be how I would formulate it. An ecclesial person is someone who is indelibly marked and permanently Christ-haunted. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is someone who has become Christ-haunted. You see, he can't kick it. He cannot get away from it. He can hide from it, but he can't get away from it. Now, the Christ-haunted seek one another out and form community. And that community is called the church. Von Balthasar says, in the church, each member is a person insofar as he assumes a unique role to which God by his grace has called him in order that he may be truly a person through the serving of the interests of the community as a whole. So again, the person is a person because he serves the community. He's called and given a role, a mission, and given the grace that's associated with that mission. Von Balthasar says the grace of God is fundamentally a call. It is being enlisted in God's service. It is being commissioned with a special task. And through all this, there is bestowed upon us a unique personal dignity in the eyes of God, whereby we are appointed to a service unique as it is personal and endowed with a spark of God's own uniqueness. Endowed with a spark of God's own uniqueness. So, Benedict says in one of his recent writings, Christianity is not only informative, it's performative. We are given a role in the ecclesial realm and in the world. We are invited to participate, ideally with omnivorous glee, in the great theodrama, which is the Christian revelation in history, and to participate in the company of other participants, in the company of fellow actors in the drama. Now, this is a little strange, what I'm going to do right now. These are just gestures in a certain direction, and I offer them to you in that spirit. I don't think I'm leading you in the wrong direction here. Christ, who came to fulfill what his ancestors had done, namely to turn time into history, was now in the Passion and Resurrection, turning history into liturgy what von Balsar calls the theodrama, the liturgical theodrama of human history. Christ's passion, death, and resurrection lifted mundane time into the realm of history and history into the realm of liturgy. The passion of Christ provides us with the script. The human theodrama has a paschal structure So the Passion provides us with a script. History is a Paschal drama. The Resurrection provides us with an eschatological horizon, a sense of the goal. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit begins dispensing missions, theatrical roles, liturgical roles, and the accompanying grace to persons in the ecclesial sense for the purpose of turning history into liturgy. The result is the Church where those who are called to take their part in the theodrama do so by learning how to turn history into liturgy. And we turn history into liturgy according to the Lord's Prayer on earth as it is in heaven. We know from John of Patmos, the book of Revelation, that history is celebrated in the hereafter liturgically. And we are to turn history, I think, in our own time as much as we can, into liturgy. How do we do that? We shall be truly free and know what freedom is, writes David Bentley Hart, only when we have no choices left. Now, that's a really important thing. We should all save that for our deathbeds. It's going to come in very handy at that time, but we may be able to use it between now and then as well. We shall be truly free and know what freedom is only when we have no choices left. Not, of course, that we won't make decisions and discernments even more than now, but we will no longer be at the mercy of the fickle winds of caprice and mood. We will have a Lord, a master. We will be disciples, even though we will be pale shadows of the supreme disciple, which is Mary of Nazareth and her fiat, We will be disciples nonetheless, and that allows us to live in a world to some extent where we have no choices left. We have said yes. We have become Christ-haunted. We shall be free and know what freedom is when we have no choices left, writes Hart. So how do we turn history into liturgy? No one takes my life from me, said Jesus at the moment when it appeared that he had no choices left. By making that statement, he appropriated the enslavement by which he himself was being appropriated and triumphed over it in sovereign freedom. At the very moment when he had no choices left, he said, no one takes my life from me. I'd lay it down and pick it up. How do we... Turn history into liturgy. Well, it's a great conundrum in a way. But here are some examples. How many of you have seen the film Babette's Feast? It's an assignment if you haven't seen it. It's an example of how you turn history into liturgy. But one could also think of Maximilian Colby. He's in this stinking death camp and somebody gets a, a fingered for execution who has children, and Maximilian Colby suddenly, I'm sure the thought surprised him as well, stepped forward and took his place, turning history into liturgy. And think of Thomas More, all the martyrs, you see, Think of Edith Stein. She was a convert, of course, from Judaism. The Nazi thugs came for her, and she turned to her sister and said, we must go to be among our people. That's turning history into liturgy. Think of Mother Teresa picking up these babies on the streets of Calcutta, turning history into liturgy. People said to her, it's not fulfilling any utilitarian purpose. And Mother Teresa looked at that person Wondering, where did they ever come up with that? (laughs) We're here to turn history into liturgy. And I even think, I I think back on this so often. Some years ago, I was in a motel. I turned on the news, and there was a guy doing the stock market report on CNBC. The CNBC stock report guy, reporting on the stock market. It was Ash Wednesday, and he had these huge black ashes on his forehead. And I thought, that's fantastic. You see, he's turning history into liturgy in his own little way. And I think even when you go to a restaurant and you stop and you pray and you bless yourself before you eat, that's turning history into liturgy. These little gestures serve to remind those who know and give hints to those who don't that history has a paschal structure and that however provisionally it is liturgically replicated in this life, it is celebrated with omnivorous glee in the next, as we know from John of Patmos's description of it in the book of Revelation. In the light of which we can come to recognize that what seems tragic in this life is triumphant in the next. The school where we learn to turn history into liturgy along the lines of the heavenly liturgy of John of Patmos is, of course, the Eucharistic liturgy. And we may have something to say about that next month. But here's what Guardini, who wrote a marvelous book in the middle of the 20th century on the liturgy, here's what he says about it, apropos of freedom and self and all that stuff that we talked about earlier. He says, in the liturgy, The individual has to renounce his own ideas and his own way. He is obliged to subscribe to the ideas and to follow the lead of the liturgy. To it he must surrender his independence, pray with others and not alone, obey instead of freely disposing of himself. He must shake off the narrow trammels of his own thought and make his own a far more comprehensive world of ideas he must go beyond his little personal aims and adopt the educative purpose of the great fellowship of the liturgy. And he says, quote, the individual is obliged to take part in exercises which do not respond to the particular needs of which he is conscious. He must ask for things which do not directly concern him, espouse and plead before God causes which do not affect him personally and which merely arise out of the needs of the community at large. You could say in the Old Testament, time was turned into history, and the New Testament makes it possible for us to go about the business of turning history into liturgy. Now I'm going back to our discussion of the mask and the actor on stage. There are three things that I would say about that. He does not come in his own name. That's absolutely key. Secondly, he subordinates himself to the script or the plot, which is a Paschal drama. So the actor steps onto this stage where history is to be turned into liturgy, A, knowing that he does not come in his own name, and B, knowing what the script is, what the plot is. It's the Paschal drama. What's happening in history is the unfolding of the Paschal drama. So he knows that. And three, because he knows that and because he does not come in his own name, he enters into an improvisational choreography with his fellow actors working in concert to turn the historical drama into a liturgical one. The improvisational aspect of it comes from knowing the plot and knowing that I do not come in my own name. And then one can begin to take cues from all kinds of very circumstantial things, chance encounters, this and that. One is free then to perform that drama in ways that are incredibly spontaneous and free. The more determined by the script and plot, the more improvisational latitude one has to take cues moment by moment from one's fellow actors and the seeming contingencies of life. However true it is that we must each work out our salvation in fear and trembling, and St. Paul's reference to running the race notwithstanding, The drama of salvation is not a lonely marathon. It is rather a communal affair. Spiritual warfare, to be sure, against the powers of death, despair, and lovelessness, but undertaken as a member of the body of Christ in history. Teilhard Desjardins said, All I want is for my life to become the ashes that fertilize the ground out of which a real saint grows. Now that's a sense of the communal Aspect of it. It's not an individual thing. We are in it together and we are influencing each other all the time. Think of team sports. Those who don't know the game will see only the person who crosses the goal line or makes the decisive basket or scores the winning run. But those who know and love the game will see how decisive was the lineman's block the point guards assist, and the long ball hitter's sacrifice fly. All visions of heaven being hopelessly impoverished, the sports metaphor turned my mind to a quasi-Pauline, mildly-testosterone vision of heaven as a cork-popping, (coughs) high-five-slapping reunion of those who have fought the good fight something roughly analogous to the winning team's locker room scene after the last game of the World Series. Vulgar though that image is, it seems to me that there's a hint in it of the omnivorous glee that is worthy of the Christian imagination. In light of which, I'm going to share with you a bumper sticker. You have seen this bumper sticker as many times as I have, but because all these things were running through my mind when I saw it in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, it took on greater significance than it ever had before. I pulled up behind this big, ugly pickup truck, which had the bumper sticker on it, which is arguably our inelegant age's clumsy approximation of omnivorous glee. And the bumper sticker said, work as though you don't need the money, love as though you've never been hurt, and dance as though nobody's looking. And it struck me as... Uh, some approximation of the omnivorous glee that we should have as we step on the stage of the theodrama and try as best we can to turn history into liturgy. I always end with Newman's prayer, which is, May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging a holy rest, and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot o-r-g. Thank you for your interest in our work. Our work.